0: Welcome to the Hong Kong On Screen podcast, brought to you by Hong Kong On Screen, a Los Angeles based nonprofit organization promoting films and culture of Hong Kong. Hello, welcome to the Hong Kong On Screen podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Justin, and with me is my co host, Dr. Aubrey Tan.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Aubrey. Please call me Aubrey. Nice to meet you all i am from hong kong and i now live in orange county california and i um i teach film and television here
0: and i am not a film professor like aubrey i'm actually only a student i'm finishing a master's in film and tv production in los angeles california and i'm also from hong kong so the hong kong on screen podcast is brought to you by hong kong on screen which is a newly formed nonprofit organization based in los angeles california ...that aims to promote and preserve Hong Kong culture, especially our cinema... ...to the greater Los Angeles area, but also to a worldwide English-speaking audience. We regularly host screenings and other programs and activities... ...that aim to preserve our voice of freedom and our local culture, especially our cinema. One of our latest programs is the podcast that you're currently listening to... ...which aims to be the first English-speaking podcast that is exclusively about Hong Kong cinema... It also acts as a space for us to discuss in detail our cinema, some of our movies, our culture, and our history. It also acts as a companion program to our screenings, because this first episode that you're currently listening to is going to be about Anne Hu, whose latest film, Love After Love, Lo we are going to be screening on July 6th in the USC School of Cinematic Arts. So hopefully this podcast can give you more context and understanding and information about Anne Heu and her work, and her life, etc. So Aubrey, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Anho?
1: Well, so Anne He was actually born to a Japanese mother and a Chinese father in um, Angshan in China in 1947.
0: I believe she was born in Manchuria, which is the northeast region of China that Japan occupied during the Second World War.
1: So she then moved to Macau and then to Hong Kong at the age of five. So she pretty much grew up in Hong Kong. And then after graduating in the the English and comparative literature uh, department from Hong Kong University, which coincidentally I also studied at, she studied filmmaking at the London International Film School. And then uh, she returned to Hong Kong in 75, and then she joined TVB. And uh, then she learned, you know, um, filmmaking and TV—I mean, television and filmmaking—and then she produced serials and documentaries. She also worked for RTHK at one point, which led to uh, the Vietnam trilogy, which we'll cover um, later. Um, so, before making her own movies, she worked as an assistant to um, other filmmakers, and um, this is how she started. Yeah,
0: right. I would also like to add two things. The first is actually how her name is pronounced. Her She has one of the most difficult names to pronounce in all of Hong Kong cinema. Her last name is actually pronounced Ho, from her Cantonese name, On Anhua, and it's not Hui or Shu or, or anything like that. The second is that she's actually the most awarded director in the history of the Hong Kong Film Awards. She has six Best Director trophies, which is double the number of Johnny To and Wong Kar Wai and other more famous contemporaries. So she is one of the most prominent and respected directors in all of Hong Kong cinema, despite the lack of recognition and fame in the West. You know, she is on the Mont Rushmore of Hong Kong cinema. So, Aubrey, so we know and her rose to prominence during the Hong Kong New Wave. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Hong Kong New Wave was and kind of what what exactly it was?
1: Yeah, so Anne Hui actually traverses different periods of the Hong Kong New Wave cinema and this is why today we talk we're going to talk about one of her earlier works 1982 film About People and Next week, we're going to do the second wave of Hong Kong New Wave. So let me just go over a little bit about the history of Hong Kong during that time. So as we all know, Hong Kong experienced 157 years of British colonization. And in the 60s, primarily, we had a lot of Hong Kong commercial cinema, a lot of martial arts cinema. In the 50s, a lot of opera cinema and then uh, some other comedies and Leftist films and drama and um, musicals, all of those commercial genres. And, and then in the 70s, Hong, Hong Kong experienced a very ideal growth of its economy and also its TV industry was booming at the time. So the TV industry actually provided a lot of new film talents for the film industry. And the booming economy also provided a lot of new film investors from other sectors, such as real real estate fast food like i'm sure that you've heard of daigalok cafe decor and also we have big press companies like Dongfong yet oriental daily and all those companies also were doing really well so we had a lot of new investors who were interested in the film industry and the 70s as we all know is also a time of change it- was also when the discussion of Hong Kong's handover started. Because if you remember, in 1984, we had the Sino-British Declaration. So in the early 80s, or even late 70s, Hong Kong people had already started talking about, you know, the prospects of returning to the PRC and all that. And also in in 1976, it was the end of the Cultural Revolution. So the PRC-owned studios, film studios, and theaters in Hong Kong, they had more freedom to uh, fund Hong Kong productions, and they were also open to collaborating with, with other foreign film companies. So, for instance, for the fundings from the PRC-owned studios, we had Phoenix, which made uh, four of the uh, Hong Kong New Wave director Alan Fong's films, including Father and Son, Fu Yuti a eating, sorry and then also bluebird Bluebird films uh, from the PRC also made Boat People. Uh, it was uh, run by the the actress ha Meng, Xia Meng. So, you know, we had a lot of, you know, exciting energy and sources of funding and all that. So, and at the time, you know, Hong Kong people also watched a lot of films. People always loved cinema. So, it is in this situation that in the late 1970s that we had Hong Kong New Wave. So, the Name Hong Kong New Wave, apparently, a lot of you would probably have expected. It came from the 1958 to 1962 French New Wave movement. So it was inspired by French New Wave. So in 1978, we had a film magazine at the time called Close-Up, 大大事, uh, which later became the Ying Song Zhao City Entertainment Magazine. So in the 1978, in August, that was the first time that one of the articles caught the new type of Hong Kong cinema that Explored different um, styles and did different things as Hong Kong New Wave. So the first Hong Kong New Wave, I mean, historians had different opinions about the periodic divisions. But primarily, at least for myself, I'm going to cut the first Hong Kong New Wave up until the 1980s. So from late 1970s to 1983, we saw prominent, um, very talented new directors, including Anne Choi Hak, Patrick Lam, Alan Fong, all these uh, directors, a lot of them coming from um, the TV industry, emerging to make exciting new films. And then after 1984 to the late 1990s, we had a Different generation. I mean, of course, the first wave directors continue to make films, but we also see a slight shift of the talent. So we then later saw Mabel Chung, Clara Law, Stanley Kuang, and of course, our beloved Wang Kao Wai in the second new wave. So this is the periodic division.
0: Right. So regarding this uh, Hong Kong new wave, um, Aubrey, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what were the predominant styles of filmmaking back then? What were the relevant subject matters and methods of production? And And who were the major figures and what were their major films?
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. So there are different um, topics or and different styles and a wide variety of genres that this movement produced. So it actually pioneered by uh, Leung Po Chi in 1976 with the film Jumping Ash, Tio Fui. And then after uh, Jumping Ash, then we saw um, other also very important and different films showcasing different styles. So for instance, Jumping Ash is a film using real policemen to play policemen uh, characters. Jumping Ash was uh, funded by um, a businessman Jimmy Yip, who ran a fashion brand at the time called Bang Bang. He also f- would use film to sell his other businesses like instant noodles, fashion, and all those things. So we ha- we see a tie in. Culture, just like blockbuster Hollywood at the same time. Jumping Ash is more like a realist film, but sometimes you would also see some sort of like genre uh, merging or mashup, like Choi Hack's 1979 film, The Butterfly Murders, Deep Bean. It's sort of a combination of martial arts film and sci-fi. And then Enhoi uh we see a trend that Anne Hui is always interested in more realist portrayal of social issues. So uh her f- 1979 film The Secret, um Phunggib. yeah, right. So that was actually about a nineteen seventies double murder case about a teacher and his fiance. So the the lovers, young lovers at the time were uh tortured and killed by a mentally ill man. And then um, later, the man got an insanity defense. So she was interested in madness. And I feel that, you know, she has always been, you know, interested, you Mm. know, madness and maybe this will even take us all the way to Night and Fork much much later and another director Dennis Yu he's also interested in you know kind of like delirium madness mm. in Hong Kong society so he made a beast San so it's actually quite similar I mean in a way about this imaginary of the countryside of Hong Kong so San the beast was also about a bunch of kind of like social outcasts or criminals and they rape and murder uh, a young girl and uh, mm-hmm. and yeah so like that and then for another for some other you know realist also i would say more leftist director like alan fong Fong your um he also made father and son of, in 1981 to tackle the kind of like maybe patriarchal working class family culture in which our sons are always valued and daughters are kind of like devalued um you know this kind of like working class or lower middle class film i would see us i even see other directors of his generation from his generation and also from other generations being influenced such as that actually remind me of the simple life mm-hmm. to the end 2011 Film And also Still Hillman, uh, a more recent film, Oliver Chang's from 2018, you know, like, yeah, so, you know, all these kind of family stories about public housing and poor people hoping to make it big with or poor people, you know, coming to terms with life and things like that. But for a more stylistic invention, we also see something so aesthetically innovative, such as the House of Lutes from 1980, directed by Lao Xing, Lau Han, your forefather. come. The House of Lutz is it actually re- reminds me of Zhang Yimou's Dao. From Mm -hmm. 10 years later So it is also about kind of like repressed sexualities So House of Lutes is very uh, minimalistic It's extremely aesthetically pleasing It uses a lot of flute music to tell a story It has minimal dialogue It's very slow Yeah, it's a good watch
0: Right, so a lot of what you described And also Anne her is kind of part of this lineage of Hong Kong cinema That is... Kind of a little underlooked. That is, you know, more like a social realist drama than the kind of cult genre films that a lot of audiences might associate Hong Kong cinema with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would actually group Anhui as compared with her contemporaries more on the leftist mm-hmm. side because like you said, both people was funded by China state-owned company, Bluebird. So there's that. And also at the time, you know, we actually uh, saw great success with both people. We also saw great success among other works funded by more commercial companies such as Golden Harvest. Mm -hmm. So before Golden Harvest came to um, success, the dominant company was Run Run Shaw in the 60s. Mm. And then it uh, so show was monopolizing the the market at the time, and then Golden Harvest later uh, recruited new talent from the TV industry, and then you know the the game changed. Mm-hmm. So I would say that Hong Kong New Wave is a product of social changes in China, and also Hong Kong's economic changes. Like we said, you know, there's good economic growth, so businessmen were looking to co sell other products with film at the same time. They would also, you know, look not just to fund productions, but also to rent theaters so that they could, you know, sell other things, you know, in the same areas, um, such as restaurant premises or other things. And then we also see collaborations with overseas studios, such as with studios from Japan and the U.K., uh, like the Hammer films in the UK for overseas exhibitions. So the, the, it was very, a very exciting moment that Hong Kong films were able to sell and make money.
0: This kind of nicely leads into Boat People, which is one of her first few films, her fourth feature film, I believe. And as you said, part of her informal Vietnam trilogy which started actually initially, the first entry of this informal trilogy is an episode of a TV show she made for radio television in Hong Kong, which is our public broadcaster, kind of like BBC. And I believe it was called Loi Ha. I'm not sure what the title in English is. And that was kind of like a 45-minute short film, and during which she collected a lot of oral histories and interviews from Vietnamese refugees, the background being after the Vietnam War, a lot of Vietnamese refugees went on boats to escape the new Vietnamese regime, and many of them escaped to Hong Kong. So at that time, there were a lot of Vietnamese refugees arriving into Hong Kong. And then did a lot of interviews with them, uh, she said more than a hundred, and she kind of compiled these into source materials for Loi Hat, which is the TV's episode I was talking about. And after this, she continued using that material to make two more films, The Story of Wuviet, Wuyudikgu Si, and Boat People, Tao Lo Hoi, which is our focus today. So Boat People was officially released in 1982, but like Aubrey said, the genesis of the film was because Xia Meng, which is one of the pro- Chinese producers Aubrey talked about, contacted Anne Ho and asked if she was interested in making a movie about Boat People. And she said yes. And then after kind of two years of fixing the script, many times they arrived at the final version, which is currently about this Japanese photographer played by George Lam, a Hong Kong actor, who is hired by the new Vietnamese regime as a photographer to document children in Vietnam. as kind of like a propaganda photographer. And then he goes there and then, he starts seeing the dark underbelly, the dark side of Vietnam. So, and then instead he he refocused his subject on the poor people living there. And then a bunch of stuff happens, you know, we meet more refugees and they try to escape and things get pretty horrific as a result. Both people actually caused a lot of controversy when it came out and when it was made because I believe it's one of the first Hong Kong films to be partially funded by mainland China. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And that was obviously a huge kind of problem at that time because, firstly, Hong Kong was not part of China back then. And because the PRC back then was still the communist regime, obviously, that created a lot of political tension overseas. For example, back then, Taiwan, which was a very important, lucrative market for Hong Kong films, they were under the Republic of China government, and they were the Anti communists, so making this film by Ann Ho he and her cast and crew, they were all risking their careers in Taiwan and they would face filmmaking bans in Taiwan.
1: Originally, both people uh, wanted to cast Zhao Yun Fat mm-hmm. uh, to play any Lau's role, um, to-, to-, to Min, but um, Chow doesn't want to risk his uh market in Taiwan, he doesn't want to lose it, so he doesn't want to do it so then later they cast Andy Lau to play that role
0: right another thing was when both people went to the Cannes Film Festival it was originally slated to be in competition but um because of the PRC funding the political background the potential propaganda elements of the film it was removed from the competition and it was shown as a surprise film out of competition at that time when the movie was made China just ended a war with Mm -hmm. Vietnam which is why China kind of funded the production of this movie And it was seen as potentially anti-Vietnamese propaganda
1: Yeah, it's very interesting when you talk about it Because like, so from China's perspective Is to make a film to show the harsh reality of Vietnamese communism right mm-hmm. but for the audience and critics at the time in Hong Kong some people saw the film as Ann Hui's allegory mm-hmm. you know she denied that it was an allegory at all but then some people saw like a metaphor yeah. of Hong Kong's yeah. future
0: and I think if we watch it today which I did and it becomes very clear <laughs> that it is you know, Vietnam in both people is the future Hong Kong that we are currently living in. Yeah, I think one of the ingenious elements of the film is that it was funded by the PRC to be this supposedly pro-PRC, anti-Vietnam piece of propaganda. But actually, Anne Her took that money and reversed that dynamic and made it into an anti-PRC or anti-dictatorship, anti-totalitarianism uh, statement. And like you said, back then when this movie was made, it was right during the negotiations for the Sino-British Joint Declaration, so there was a lot of anxiety over Hong Kong's future and what the future Hong Kong would look like. So I think this movie, kind of regardless of the Vietnamese, Chinese background, you can really see a lot of those anxieties reflected in the movie itself.
1: Yeah, it happens in, you know, the movement all the time. Uh, maybe next week we can talk a little bit about Rouge. Like Rouge mm-hmm. is also um, in a very similar uh, situation that um, it's about the 50 years one country to mm-hmm. system uh, expectation and a ghost coming back to Hong Kong in 50 years and, and everything changes and all that. So it's all, you know, it, in a sense, it's always some sort of allegory about Hong Kong's um, situation. And that's what's attractive about this Movement. It's interesting
0: you mentioned Rouge By director Stanley Kwan Because Stanley Kwan Is actually the assistant director Of both people and kind of And apprentice and, and then after both people And other films uh, As assistant director he graduated to becoming Director and made Yin Rouge And center stage Yileng. Many kind of very famous films Of the Hong Kong second wave
1: Yeah so we can really see like a genealogy Yeah you know, This kind of you know, allegorical thoughts.
0: And her herself, which we didn't mention, is also an apprentice of King Hu Wu Chun, who is also, you know, one of Hong Kong cinema's most famous directors of martial arts cinema, Wuxia Cinema, and, you know, he has also earned great fame. So you can really see the kind of generation-to-generation generation lineage of Hong Kong cinema during that time. So back to both people. So, Aubrey, what do you think about the political statement that Anhui is trying to make in this film like what do you think it actually is
1: well and always gives me this idea this impression that she is very much of a humanist and very compassionate mm-hmm. filmmaker sometimes people think that she's maybe a little bit melodramatic and some people don't like both people also for the same reason that it That some tropes are uh, maybe a little bit exaggerated, but whatever it is, Anhoy always impresses me as a very humanistic filmmaker. She's interested in women, she's interested in the poor, the injured, the helpless, the old, the abused, you know, things like that. So I guess if, from a very literal standpoint, then this is what she wants to show, you know, just the uh, very difficult situation for the vietnamese people whom she uh had contact with through her rthk documentary and also the two films of her trilogy you mentioned the story of wu viet uh, and also the other one was boy from vietnam Mm -hmm. from 1978 so yeah she always you know gives me this very compassionate idea of lives men women children all walks of life regardless of their nationalities and that's that's what makes her films warm to watch, but sometimes very heartbreaking as well.
0: Yeah, I think some of the criticisms against both people is that it's kind of too humanistic for its own good, that she cares you know, mm-hmm. so much about the little people on the ground that she kind of neglects the geopolitical forces that are behind the film. But I think in defense of her, you can actually see a lot of fingers being pointed at those people I mean at those you know geopolitical countries and institutions it's just kind of all hidden and it's not her primary concern which I think is understandable for her as a filmmaker you know it's not what she's really interested in then I feel like we can't really force her to make a statement about things that are not her primary concern and I think like regarding what you said about the tropes what I find very interesting about both people is that when people kind of criticize it as a piece of propaganda, you can really see how she kind of subverts the tropes of propaganda. For example, the Japanese photographer protagonist who is supposed to be this kind of you know neutral third country you know war photographer who is this kind of you know like you you expect him to be this peaceful visitor figure, kind of like the UN a negotiator kind of role and then she actually he actually gets really involved and he kind of has these tendencies to be really generous and rich like you see in the movie he like literally offers financial assistance to the poor people that he meets and then and her subverts this trope which in US movies would be considered the white savior like and subverts the white savior trope without well I don't really want to spoil what happens at the end of the movie but Let's just say that his white saviorship is subverted at the end and it does not end in the way that we expect, you know, the white savior in the movie does not come into Vietnam and solve all the problems and leave and what you would expect from a kind of feel-good narrative.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not a Hollywood um narrative. Yeah, so it's 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 a good point that it's anti like White Savior, I would see that if contemporary, some contemporary audience would still find the film kind of like problematic to watch today, for instance, to right. um, play foreign characters or, you know, I mean, the White Savior character didn't end up the way a Hollywood film would want it to, but still, I mean, a pretty tragic ending of uh, the character. So, Maybe from what I see, I see that, you know, it's a very idealistic outlook for Enhui to put all these, you know, characters together because obviously if you remember what in one scene that George Lem's character is singing a Japanese children's mm-hmm. song and then Kam Lung is singing a Vietnamese children's song together mm-hmm. when all things fell apart right right? her uh, mother died her brothers died so it it is this you know kind of like cross boundary solidarity of peoples that she's suggesting right it doesn't matter if it's your japanese or vietnamese we're all screwed and eventually and also george lamb's character is also i mean she's he's he's privileged but he's his parents are also uh, killed in the Second World War, right? So he's also a victim of war. So I guess it's a very idealistic story, I would say, to try to subvert the kind of national boundary. Yeah,
0: but I think at the same time, the kind of cross-boundary solidarity that you said can be read as some kind of liberal fantasy. But I think what makes this film not that kind of liberal fantasy is specifically the tragic ending that you mentioned, like you know, you expect this movie to the, to be this kind of multinational globalism, everything is happy, you know, look at all the children kind of movie. And then it actually does not end up being that because I think what strikes me most about both People, like at a very visceral level, is that it is an extremely, extremely brutal film. It is actually a, a, the opposite of a feel-good movie. It's actually one of the most brutal war films I've ever seen. You know, when people think of brutal war films, they think of you know, Hollywood films like Saving Private Ryan, which is like very graphic violent. And Bo People like isn't like that at all, but somehow manages to be so striking in this depiction of violence because I think Anne Her doesn't seek to make the violence and the bloodshed a spectacle. She just kind of shows it as this kind of everyday part of life of the Vietnamese people. And Mm -hmm. And the kind of sudden bursts of violence are so, just so striking and just so brutal, but you know, it doesn't exploit, it doesn't, you know, it's not graphic, it's just, it really, really confronts you with the reality of war and the aftermath
1: Right, it's like everyday business, right? Yeah, it's definitely a good point about uh, violence that you're saying, I feel that she's giving us all of it, she's giving us love, and then she's giving us fear and shock and everything you know you go in uh, there and you are experiencing all of it and it just stuns you you know and um I think the the reason why she makes the white savior character this way is because she intentionally doesn't want the audience to have this privileged position Mm -hmm. because we actually see I mean the camera sees the the f- The story through the through um, George Lamb's perspective mostly, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, it's very figurative. She's a, he's a Japanese photo journalist, right? So he holds like, literally holds a camera, mm-hmm. right, in the film, right, to hint us that we are also knowing the reality through the camera right so we are actually him I mean in a way i mean, kind of like he's a virtual body so she doesn't want us to you know have this you know feel good and um mm-hmm. you know happy ending yeah. right she wants to impress us that you know it's, it's really it's really not that you know it's really sad what's happening in Vietnam
0: how do you think the style of the movie is related to the Hong Kong new wave like kind of what do you think are one of its some of its outstanding um, stylistic elements
1: I actually see very foreign influenced aesthetics i 'm mm-hmm. not sure if I see like a close comparable in the same movement, but I definitely see. Uh, foreign influence from French New Wave and other kind of like realism, right. like it, maybe Italian realism or something. Uh, such as you know, he she uses a lot of low key lighting. Like the film mm-hmm. is so hard to, I mean, it's so hard to know what's going on at some moments in the film, like because it's just too dark and like you don't really know what's going on. But that's exactly the point, right? That, that she doesn't want you to see everything. I mean, it's it's you you you're knowing the reality from a very privileged perspective and you have to actually really make some efforts to know what's going on right and the color uh scheme was very, was very bluish very cold um so that's definitely about the tragedy right the war reality in yeah. um Vietnam and also I see some uh, maybe remnants of melodrama like Mm -hmm. the it's the dialogue is very heavy people keep talking and talking and talking you you literally if you try to just like look away and and the music too yeah if you just hear the film without watching it you will still pretty much know what's going on at, at all times so it's a very heavy dialogue film The characterization is very dramatic in a way. Like all the characters are very vibrant and specific. You know, you have this officer, Nguyen, who is a Vietnamese but French educated, extremely nostalgic, you know, post colonial. Uh, officer always thinking about french food and wine and the old days and being this young revolutionary right. and now he's completely disillusioned because he's old and he's forced to you know work for the communists and then uh, he has a mistress and the mistress is you know beautiful and oh, like she a kno- femme yeah and she knows how to like make french food and she has american boyfriends and French boyfriends, and she has her means, but she also has to turn tricks for her, uh, lover, who's uh, Tomi may, played by uh, Andy, Andy Lau. Lau. Mm-hmm. So Tommy is this young man, right? He he is every young man we see, mm-hmm. we saw in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. right? To to try to you know just get away, right? And then the composition is pretty standard, I would say, um, a rule of thirds type of composition, very mature, very, uh, well managed. Um, she uses very uh, strategized Montage, you right. see cows And then you see young men in trucks Right, to mean that men Are just like cattle In that situation, you know, in trucks On their way to the new economic zone So it's a completely Dehumanizing, demoralizing Situation, right, right? And then, and also, like, she, she sometimes Uses fairly high contrast To, to shock you, mm-hmm. such as the uh, Scene with the naked children in the new economic Mm, zone yeah so you see you know happy children at the beginning right they're singing and cute and happy and all well-dressed and then and then you see this you know high contrast evenings scene of children and all of them are naked and that's that's a pretty that's a really like sleeping
0: in a bar i
1: know that's so haunting (laughs) i mean (laughs) Right And and of course, yeah, you saw also the graphic content So it's very mature I would say it's a very mature aesthetic That yeah. she's showcasing I can definitely see um, her education yeah, yeah. I think
0: it's interesting that You draw a comparison to French New Wave Because I think one of the most interesting um, Sequences or scenes of the film Is kind of near the end When there is like a death of one of the characters And it's kind of intercut In this very extreme way Like she is Dying and then it's intercut With like a funeral and it's just Extremely jarring and the editing there Is really really mm-hmm. inspired
1: Yeah she's definitely Definitely deeply deeply Influenced by French New Wave but, Like the naked children scene That's like so much like Night mm-hmm. and fog Remember, and actually later she makes a a drama right, but she also uses Night and Fog as the title, so you know you can tell she probably was a fan of noir. Mm.
0: I think for me stylistically, the opening shot is definitely a very very um striking kind of capital letters kind of shot, which is this very acrobatic three minute long take crane shot, which is like traveling up and down at the right at the end of the Vietnam War. When the North Vietnam army is going into Da Nang, which is the city that Bo people is set in, and then he she cuts from that extremely acrobatic long take to a short reverse shot on the ground between George Lamb, the mm-hmm. photographer, and his subject, which is a child who's lost his limb, and you can really kind of see the two sides of Anne hurry there. You know, the side that is in the spectacle, the action, you know. Actually, for a humanist filmmaker, she's made quite a lot of wartime spectacles throughout her career. She's even made wuxia films. And then, on the other hand, is the kind of humanist, shot-reverse-shot, very realist, simplistic filmmaker. And in that three minutes, you really see the entire career of Anne Her just in the opening of both people.
1: Yeah, actually, that sequence that you're talking about, that reminds me of Soviet Union, like a man with Mm -hmm. a moving camera type of, like, you know, you... different you see just just go around the city and just uh look at the good and bad of the Mm. people like snapshots basically
0: i think another thing that is stylistic about the film is kind of what i talked about in the the brutality of the violence i think hollywood movies have this kind of puritanical fear of violence that is kind of like you know like and PG-13 movies, you can't show blood. You know, you can only show blood in R-rated movies. There's this kind of very Puritan thing where every drop of blood in American cinema is you have to look at and really, really decide if you want to put it there or not. And then both people, like a lot of Hong Kong films back then and even now, have this kind of indifference to violence that is very unflinching. It's just like children being blown apart. It's just, it's just part of the film. And then we move on to the next scene. You, know, you can see this in... Uh, the story of Wu Viet, which is the previous film in her Vietnam trilogy, which is kind of about Chao Yun Fat before he became an action star. And then he's doing these kind of action scenes at the second half of the movie. And again, the violence is just kind of very straight to the point, very unflinching. It's just it just happens. And it's very kind of, you know, there's no fear of blood at all. It's just the blood is just splattering across across the screen. And this is by Anne Hew, who is not a genre filmmaker, who is not a filmmaker we associate with heroic bloodshed. And then you can also kind of see this unflinching attitude towards violence in, you know, so-called more romantic filmmakers like Wong Kar-wai, etc. So you can really see this attitude towards violence in Hong Kong cinema that is very, very different from Hollywood cinema that we might be used to. And I think both people, even though it's kind of this humanist drama, has a lot of these elements as well
1: yeah i agree very honest and authentic and poetic type mm-hmm. of violence kind of a trademark violence isn't it i mean we're experts of violence look at the martial mm-hmm. arts uh films in the 60s right i mean even if we're you know like poetic people you know i think all hong kong fans uh, has a taste of you know the kind of like bloody yeah. tradition of violence as aesthetics so. right very good. Awesome. Well, I'm so looking forward to Love After Love. Um, Justin, do you know how we can get tickets to watch oh, that? Oh, I believe is it, it is free. free? Do we have to pay Oh, so you can it? go or to
0: cinema.usc.edu <laughs> and then under the events page, you can go to the event page for Love After Love screening on July 6th. And then you can just RSVP there and it is a free screening to, to the public in Los Angeles. And on the next episode, we will talk more about Anho's kind of mid-career period where she made movies like Song of the Exile, right? And then we're going to wrap up her career in the current decade and kind of what she's been up to. You can reach out to us or Hong Kong on Screen through our Hong Kong on Screen Facebook page or Instagram.
1: So leave a comment if you wanna if you want us to focus on a particular film that you like. I would
0: also like to add that Bo People is one of Anhur's most accessible films in the West. It is currently available on the Criterion Channel, and it also has a fantastic Blu-ray release just released this year by Criterion. It has both people and also has two more documentaries about Anne-Hur, both feature length. So in that Blu-ray, you really get three features. This being one of anne most accessible movies in the West, it's definitely one of the easiest to check out and we really encourage you to check it out. And we look forward to seeing you next time.
1: Yay! Bye! Bye.